Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Hello, Living Church Podcast listeners. Happy New Year. Happy Epiphany. Um, well, I don't know exactly what we say in the season after Epiphany, but why not? Happy Epiphany. Let's err on the side of being more happy than not. I hope you all had a rich and joyous Christmas. And if you did not, in fact, if it was somewhat the opposite, I hope that you experienced the very real presence of our Lord with you, his comfort and his guidance. And thank you so much, all of you who gave to the Living Church during Christmas Tide. I do some work with donations. I love seeing your names come through the donation reports. It is seriously so wonderful to witness your generosity. And actually, if you have not had a chance to do that yet, then get right on over to livingchurch.org forward slash donate and make a donation to kick off 2022. I seriously do not mind if you pause me right now and go do that. It supports all of our ministries of communication and encouragement, including, of course, this very podcast that you listen to right now. Now, while we're in this time of Epiphany, I have cooked up a few episodes of the podcast that have to do with Epiphany, with recovering and sharing the aha of what God has shown us in his son, Jesus. What does this aha moment, this Epiphany, God's mission, look like in different contexts, among seekers, people of other faiths or none, as well as among the long ago baptized and catechized? And how are we as Christians and churchgoers shaped by that epiphany light? How do we even pick up on it sometimes, experience it afresh after long habituation? So what we've got in store for you today is the latest cutting edge idea you've never thought of before, guaranteed to optimize discipleship and mission involving technology you barely know about and all for the low price of, just kidding, <laughs> just kidding. Today, we're going to talk about something you already have, something you already know and probably know really well, liturgy, liturgy as mission. You've already got, with God's help, all you need to share the gospel in a powerful way. 
doesn't mean you can't go out, learn more stuff, get new stuff. That's great. But today we're just going to talk about what's already in your hands. I met several months ago at a lovely little party of Anglicans, a priest whose bread and butter is this very question about liturgy and mission. And as soon as he started telling me what he's working on, what's going on at his church, I said, you know what? I've got to have you on the podcast. This is going to be encouraging to people. My guest today is the Reverend Dr. Sean McCain. He is an Anglican priest and a church planter and the founding rector of Resurrection Anglican Church in South Austin, Texas. Before that, he helped plant Redeemer Anglican Church in Santa Cruz, California. He's also been a computer engineer at Hewlett Packard. He's currently working on his first book, and he'll tell us a little more about himself in the interview. And just like the church seasons teach us when we go through them over and over and over again, we can get and should get re-inspired by what we already have, by what we already know, and that this itself can teach us so powerfully to seek out what God still has in store. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Now, how how are you, Sean? You doing all right over there in Austin? Um, yeah, my I'm trying to rep, like change modes here. I've been doing um, year end budgets and P and L statements and stuff. And yeah. I'm about to like make this fun. Okay, ready? Yeah. Have you? Did you ever watch or did your father ever watch fr- uh, Monday Night Football? No. <laughs> okay. Well, you're not going to understand this, but. This has been before you got on the call. This was going through my yeah. head. Are you ready for a podcast? <laughs> a Thursday morning party. We got Sean and Amber Dawn. We're gonna get this thing started. See that? That. But I guess you don't. I don't have. Don't to you watch, feel a lot better? Yeah, I don't have to watch Monday Night Football too. Appreciate that. I could. I'll take that at any day. Well, I tried. <laughs> I tried, Father. Father Sean McCain. Thank you for joining us today. It's good to be with you. Now, Sean, last time we talked, you told me you were in the market for some new shoes. So did you find some new shoes? That, gosh, wow, you paid attention. This is this is what makes you such a, a good podcast host is you listen to people's stories and remember them and then bring them back around. You, and I you start know with the important stuff. Exactly. And well, shoes are important. I have not found a replacement pair. <laughs> so this is not completely a random question because the last time we spoke, um, nice shoes connect to our topic today, which is missional liturgy. Can you tell us that story, Father, of the the woman who saw your shoes and was inspired? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I wow, you did remember things. So, I that is an interesting connection, and I do see where you're going with this. When there was this lady who was new to our church, and she was not used to the liturgy or the tradition or the smells and the bells, the, like the incense and the whole kind of the pageantry of the whole thing. Um, and she was sitting there in the, in the fr- uh, one of the few like uh, front rows. And at the end of the service, um, I think after coming for a, a few weeks, pulled me aside and said, Father Sean, I don't know anything about any of this, but I noticed your shoes and I don't wear, I'm not like, you're not going to find me on that Instagram account. That's like sneakers, uh, preachers or whatever that thing is. Don't go look it up. It's not worth your time, but I'm not that guy. I have like regular shoes 
And that I think for her, that's what she kind of needed a little bit of a glimpse of something kind of regular, kind of normal <laughs> in, in a sea of, of symbols and visuals that were like really strange. And this may not be the best example that we're going to hear today of the missional liturgical, but I think it'll at least get us in the door. Right. <laughs> Sean, can you tell us what you're doing right now in Austin? Sure. I'm the rector of Resurrection Anglican Church in South Austin. Um, I am um, a husband to Michelle and a father of six children. And I think it's important to note that five of those children are girls and I love them all. And we also, um, if it wasn't crazy enough, now we have animals just keep showing up in our house. Now we have a dog and a cat and a rabbit. And um, so that's what I'm doing in Austin. I'm cleaning up after people and animals <laughs> and having a wonderful life leading a parish. Now, before you were the priest at this particular parish, you have also done some other church planting. And it seems to me like you, you're you a parish priest and at heart, you're also a church planter. And so this kind of living on the, the frontier, always looking out for people who don't know Christ, a sort of, you know, evangelical missional edge is something that seems to be really in your heart. And you were telling me, um, as we were chatting the other day, that in your doctoral work on the liturgy, this became a guiding question for you. What are some of the assumptions people have that they don't realize they have that are being confronted or engaged in the acts and symbols of the liturgy? So in other words, how are people who come into worship being confronted or challenged or changed by the liturgy. Now, if I were naming this phenomenon, I would call this phenomenon catechetical liturgy hmm. or maybe, maybe evangelical liturgy. Why are you calling this missional liturgy? Yeah. And I would, I, I'm not, I would have to unpack that a little bit because I'm not sure I would call the liturgy missional in the ways that uh, kind of on the surface at first glance that people might mean that. Um, it is certainly, there's characteristics of it that are catechetical for sure. And even evangelical, we would hope that those would all be things like adjective adjectives that would describe um, the liturgy. Um, but for us, what, what I imagine when I um, see, when I'm imagining the liturgy and people's confrontation by it, something that you'll hear us say often in our parish is the liturgy isn't weird, you're weird. <laughs> and it's this playful kind of provocative conversation starter to say, when we come uh, to participate in the Holy Eucharist or the Holy Baptism, um, we are not stepping into kind of some sort of private spiritual world, but actually we're coming in touch with reality. We're stepping into the most public, um, the most cosmic, the most truth-telling um, set of actions that human beings can be caught up in as they encounter the living God. So the assumption that there's that that is being confronted here in people is something like there's the spiritual side of people's lives, and then there's this real world side of people's lives where we go and do our jobs and and get busy doing the things we do, and the liturgy is it kind of turns that not only upside down to say, actually in the liturgy we're coming in contact with the the most real world to be honest, uh, but also that kind of dualism of there's a spiritual thing over here and a real thing over here. That gets broken down um, as well in the liturgy and, and integrated in a, a view of life that is ultimately um, an imagination rooted in the incarnation itself. That 
um, we see fully God, fully man in the person of Christ. Um, that is the world that we're living in, not some sort of like compartmentalized or a dualistic view of things. So for me, then the term missional um, in light of that is is trying to provoke a question in people or an imagination in people um, that that says um, in the liturgy, if we if that is the drama that's unfolding and, and that's the imagination that we're inhabiting, this one in which this integrated God and humanity um, reconciled kind of an imagination, if that's what's happening in the liturgy, then what happens when a people, when individuals, when living members of a body then go through the world, would live in history, then go back to work as well, not as if they're departing from that reality, but in that reality, moving through history and through the world, um, that then has this kind of impact, this effect of, of mission. It is, in fact, like characteristically missional in that sense. So what I don't want to do is say, um, like to instrumentalize liturgy or to make liturgy about something other than the worship of God. Um, liturgy is about the worship of God. Um, but more deeply, what I want to get after here is um, the like kind of formation in a person's whole life that takes ev- their life as they have it, everything as they have it, their jobs, their vocations, their family situations, their anxieties, their bills, um, and and integrates that under the lordship of Jesus to that degree when you when you run that out i think it has a profoundly missionary or missional um implication for not only people's personal lives but entire communities that get caught up in that reality so it sounds like when you at first when you were explaining this i wondered is he is he doing this work to reform the imaginations of people who aren't um who are are new to church and and is that you know is that the kind of imaginary that he's trying to break down the one that says well church is for the spiritual time and or maybe you know christians who aren't very well formed but now i'm hearing that you're really speaking to christians and christians across the spectrum of of how they've been formed so maybe christians who still have those strong categories of i come to church i do my my spiritual thing um, and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and maybe I get a lot out of it. And then I go back out into the world where things are maybe more compelling. You're trying to teach people and train people to experience, to worship God and experience, um, the liturgy as something that then when they leave the church building, they're seeing some of the signs of what they experienced in worship out in their lives outside of the four walls right. of the church. Yeah. So because the what we're getting at here is like, how do we refurnish the imagination? Um, that's really what what's ha- the kind of the underlying question here. And the liturgy is um, has a powerful effect on our, our imagination. And we could, we could show this by, if you think about Jamie Smith and the work that he's done with sort of um, desiring the kingdom mm-hmm. and the, the, the way that liturgy yeah, affect desires. That's what this what reminds me of. Yes, exactly. So these habits, we have these outside of the church. Like I love coffee in part because of my morning coffee routine, um, this ritual that I have with coffee. Sometimes I will make a cup of coffee just to smell it. And I wouldn't even be thinking about it, but 
it, it's comforting. It's warm. I smell it. I know it's there and I can sit down and write something. For some reason, that ritual um, has, has furnished an imagination for me in that way. And so what I'm suggesting about the liturgy, and this is nothing new, I'm working with, um, I'm standing on a lot of shoulders here. Uh, so this is nothing new is that the liturgy is, uh, has this, uh, and uniquely because the spirit of God is, is uniquely and particularly involved is the primary actor in, um, our participation in the liturgy. It has this therefore impact to re-enchant our view, not just of the liturgy and not just of the church, but of the entire world kind of like, um, it's, it's almost a little bit haunting. Um, and I would say that, that, that haunting isn't just for Christians though. They, we certainly need that, but it's also for anyone who walks in the doors of the church to come in contact with the realization that, um, like, oh my gosh, God is real. He's here. These people think he's present and to come in contact um, with his work through these people's lives, either in the liturgy or beyond the liturgy. And so for whoever receives that uh, kind of nudging in the imagination, I, I think that it has the potential to refurnish one's entire outlook of everything else in their life. Um, and that's not something that I think happens once. Like you go to, you don't go to the gym and come out just like shredded. You go to the gym and there's a process, hopefully, I mean, I don't know, but like supposedly the process is you, you work out a lot and the change happens over time. And so I think the liturgy, um, um, not just because of habits, but because of the involvement of the Holy Spirit and especially the work of the sacraments in our lives has this, Im this impact, this effect on us. Especially, I mean, for me, I was in, I've been involved in the theology arts ministry world for, um, you know, a, a decade and more. And, um, these are exactly the kinds of questions about imagination. And when, what you're describing, I'm thinking of, um, the way that you get immersed in a theater performance. Like if I go see Cymbeline, uh, and it's a really great performance of Cymbeline, Cymbeline has a heck of a lot to do with the gospel and hope and resurrection. Mm. And that's right. And so I, I did see like a great, I have I had never even heard of Cymbeline, to be honest with you. I went and saw this performance of Cymbeline and it, it gave me a vision of the world. And this wasn't, this wasn't an act of worship. This wasn't coming into the presence of the cherubim and the fair and the seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy. <laughs> this was uh, people, you know, prancing around and singing silly songs and, and, and there being like, you know, lovers that can't quite find each other and, and people hiding in sacks. And, you know, I don't remember the plot what? exactly, but <laughs> anyway, um, among all this, even in a play, um, you know, you, you get immersed in a performance and it shapes you in a particular way, emotionally, um, even the, just the experience of catharsis can be yeah. really helpful in putting you in a different place to face your life outside the theater or outside the the four walls of the church. But I I do wonder, even if you're standing on the shoulders of things that a lot of other people are thinking about right now, what do you bring specifically to these questions? You are a church planter, you're a pastor, you're a father of six, um, you're Latino, you've been a computer engineer. There are there've got to be specific, you've seen specific things. Uh, what are you bringing to these questions? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, uh, maybe the one place to begin was to plant a church. I was told that you kind of, 
every church planner has to be a little crazy. <laughs> and I think that's really true in my case. And there's a factor of risk in planting a church. I, I don't know if you know anything about like Enneagram sevens, but we thrive on uh, risk and a good time and um, getting people enthusiastic about things. So risk is part of the mix. And so for me, what I bring to this is I kind of want people to um, experience, I want, I want people to experience the liturgy to such an extent that the, the kinds of risks that we're willing to take or what we think are risks about discerning God's presence, um, in our lives and the things that he's doing in the world. I want people to be less risk averse. I want them to have this conversion, uh, moment that maybe something like, I mean, I'm, I've in no way arrived here, but those moments where we, that we've all had, where we think God is real, (laughs) where we knew that, but then we had this, wait a second, but he's really real. And we think, was I a, a, was I like an atheist this whole time? No, we weren't, but we just in a deeper, refreshing way realized again, he's here. He really is here. And he's, he really does care about me. He loves me. And he's up to something profound is amazing. It's like one of the most exciting and interesting things. Um, and I think that when the church begins to do that, both personally and as communities, I think that's really important. This isn't just kind of a lone ranger, go and be risky and crazy, uh, but right. us as, as parishes, as communities, right? Discerning like, uh, in deeper and deeper ways, the way that God is present and at work in the world. Um, then our, when we get busy participating with that, the witness of that is immediately apparent. And the things that you find us speaking up about, the things that matter to us, the things that, the kind of violence that we put our bodies in front of, or the kinds of injustices that we want to disrupt, um, or denounce or, or name, um, they, they're not now just kind of framed as, uh, either do-gooders or like social justice warriors. We're discerning that primarily as where this is where Jesus is, and this is what he's up to. So that's why we find ourselves here. So, what I'm hearing is that this is really all about the relationship between liturgy and mission. Now, we just had a podcast episode, I, the last one, uh, or a couple episodes back in in uh, early December, on evangelism. And I think when people think of evangelism, when they think of mission, they sort of think of those two things as the same, um, which is fair to, to a certain extent. But then they, we think of, um, okay, I come to church, church is kind of the filling station. I'm with my family, the family of God. I'm, I'm entering into worship. I'm receiving the Eucharist. I'm being fed and being healed. And then I go out and kind of spend that energy. And very often what's needed, there's sort of a little a breaking point or a little fulcrum where things don't always quite connect, which is, okay, now how do I... Monday's here, you know, what just, even if the service was, you know, I was just so deeply moved. Like I seem to be the same person today. (laughs) There seems to be. So, so sometimes I think that a lot of energy might be put into pumping people up for the stuff that we now have to do. Don't get me wrong, Sean. There's a lot to do. There's a lot of good work that he has prepared for us to walk in, if we should walk in it, please, Lord, help us. Right. But it's the but what I'm thinking of is like the pumping up that maybe mm. church leaders feel that they have to do almost sometimes 
maybe the pressure to do it almost artificially sometimes. Like, mm, where's yeah. the energy coming from? Well, we got to drum it up because we have to do it, people. Climate change and, and racial reconciliation and COVID. And it's like, you know, what right. is... Right. But but what you're describing, there seems to be more of a um, a seamlessness to it. So my question for you, Sean, is how does liturgy, how does liturgy make people less risk averse and more energized for the work of God? What have yeah. you seen? So yeah, and I, I there's a lot to say here. One, I think you've set it up well though, and I think you're describing it pretty fairly, to be honest. Um, but I, let me ask it this, let me kind of posit it this way. Um, if we can help our people to see that our lives, uh, in the world, let's call that, um, the, the mission of God's people, right? If that is not like phase two, like we don't have to pump people up and send them out. We're not like forming and sending, but if actually mission is sustained liturgical action, um, or some have called it the liturgy after the liturgy. Then, and if we can work to integrate the two, not as different modes, um, or like you, you know, you checked the church box, now go get busy doing, do your best, guys. You know, that's not even the spirit of the Great Commission to begin with. God, Jesus didn't send the disciples like, peace out, fellas, good luck. He, he, he gave them instructions uh, of what to do, but he also assured them that he would be with them. So there, he's never sending us on errands. This is a whole life immersed in the life of God that we never depart from. So, and this is where I think specifically the sacraments can do some work uh, on our imaginations. But think of baptism, for instance, the way that we are um, unified with Christ's death and his resurrection. We join in his new life. We receive the forgiveness of sins. That's not something we shake off when we go out the door. We could kind of imagine, and I tell people this when they're baptized, that we, now you walk around the world dripping with the water of baptism. It's not like you dry off from this thing. You, it stays with you. When you receive Eucharist, you, um, you come to consume the body and blood of Jesus, but then you, as William Cavanaugh so brilliantly puts it, you are consumed by the life of God. You, you never like shake that, you know, it always kind of remains with you. So there's this really inextricable link between liturgy and mission in precisely the work of Jesus in, in the Paschal mystery itself. The liturgy is our participation in the Paschal mystery and the Paschal mystery, God's the father sending of the son is the mission of God. And so, um, in kind of some sort of paradoxical way, liturgy is involved, is, is our involvement in the Paschal mystery and the Paschal mystery is the mission of God, which we're also involved with because of baptism and Eucharist and our involvement in the liturgy. So when people want to receive Eucharist or want to be baptized, really in the reverse order, right? Um, they're not just kind of signing up for uh, a religious affiliation. They're, they're being caught up in a movement, a motion of a, of a body in real world and real history that is the, the body of Christ. It's a, it's a church in departure, it's been said, oriented toward God's horizon, the horizon of God's future. So that's, that's kind of the theological, and there's a lot of work there to do imaginatively. I think practically when we preach, when we lead the liturgy, you don't want to tour guide it to death, of course, but you can briefly point these things out and do some of this liturgical catechesis or this kind of sacramental catechesis.
baking powder, biscuits, and hair cream. These are just three things that the Living Church magazine used to run advertisements for. Yeah, we go way back. Well, it may no longer be 1910, but we're still happy to help you share the word about, maybe not baking powder, but about anything that you have going on that you would like a smart, informed Christian audience to know about. Events, job openings, books, curricula, pilgrimages. If it's something that could serve Christian leaders, we will help you spread the word on this podcast. Just email me at ambernoel at livingchurch.org and we'll get you started. Email ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Do you have any tips for us, any stories of how these are practically playing out? Um, yeah, you mentioned a, I don't know yeah. what you call it. Do you call it a, instru- ins- taught, a taught Eucharist? What do you call it oh, when you liturgy sort of teach tour. as you go? Yeah. A, you call it a liturgy tour? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I literally do. Okay. We call it a liturgy tour. So we do this okay. for n- new folks, but I'll say, um, and we'll have coffee and say, we lay everything out. We call it a big show and tell. We just, it may, we make it super low key because most people have no idea. They've never been in these spaces. So we try and make it as, as um, non-threatening as possible, not intimidating as possible. And we walk around and I tell the story of the Exodus using the, the church's architecture, its layout, our vestments. And we talk about we talk about the Exodus. We talk about it being fulfilled in the Paschal mystery of Christ and walk through the whole liturgy. People stop and ask questions. It's a, it's a kind of a, a low-hanging fruit way of, and it's such a fun way of actually um, helping people understand what's going on. But on a regular basis, uh, and that's important, on a regular basis though, uh, I've made it a, a, a kind of a commitment. I'm not always great at this, but I, I'd make a commitment that in every liturgy and specifically in every homily, I try to find an action, a set of words, a symbol in the the church, um, in the liturgy that I can point to and say, hey, it's kind of like this. Um, so for instance, we started Advent and for Advent one, I preached and I, I brought up the fact that like, hey, church, you know, every week you say that you believe that Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And so I point to these places where that these words have been on their lips and say, do you mean that? So just to kind of help take the, um, the creedal components, maybe for instance, in this example, and get kind of dust them off, shake them up out of the religious category, the spiritual category, people's conscience, conscious, and, and like, and move that into the, the real world space to take those spiritual convictions and then drop them in how people function right in their real world kind of, um, imaginary and say, have you made sense of these two things? Have you integrated this claim that you say on Sunday with what you really think about what's news in the world right now? And then there are just honestly, like just making yourself as a clergy person accessible and available to questions and liturgy tours. Um, and, and any, in any, uh, kind of teaching setting or small group setting, Keeping in mind, there's a whole wealth of liturgy that your people do every week that you can use to say, hey, this thing we do with our bodies or mm-hmm. this thing we say, um, let's talk about that. You know, you know what? This is what that means. I wonder if we could revisit it knowing that this is what that means. What would that look like? I'm also hearing, Sean, that people can use what they have. I went to, I attended a, a church for several years that was in a converted storefront. So they would not have had a very effective architecture tour, but they did have beautiful art that they had commissioned, specifically some liturgical banners that they'd commissioned um, that they use to this day. Uh, It's been many years now. 
um, and they are uh, abstract. They use gold leaf. They're they're sort of um, very 21st century, um, but deeply rooted in the liturgical seasons, and 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 um, th- they have a theological depth to them, even visually. So. If you've got beautiful architecture, use your architecture. If you've got amazing church banners, if your people put out incredibly thoughtful flowers that have specific meanings every week or every season, talk about the flowers. Um, Use your coffee dates. If you live in a a, a place where people are crazy about their coffee, um, use that. Uh, Use your homilies. Use your small groups. I'm just hearing you also sort of talk about use what is already in the soil of, of what you have, not only in the liturgy, which we all share, but also in your individual community, culture, even your church building. You've got to use what you got. And uh, I would say that when people, when the church sees you um, using what you have well and imaginatively, and again, that like allegorical work of um, interpreting the liturgy and telling those stories, that's not like out of bounds. That's nothing new. The father's been doing that forever. And it's, I mean, it's all over the place. So it's read John Daniel Liu that one of the uh, resourcement Catholic theologians, he does it like crazy and it's amazing. Um, so if you need tutoring, there you go, but, um, use what you have. And when I, here's what I think when, when your church sees you using what you have and telling the story with what you have in these creative ways, imaginative ways, your artists will go, will, will, I bet turn the light on and say, Oh, I got to get to work. Like that's, that's me. That's my cue. I, the craftsman, the artist, will say, oh, I've got something to contribute to the imagination of this church in my craft and to work with your, uh, your lay leaders or your clergy in, in this, uh, like in crafting things and making things um, like the things that we've had made for us, people that have gifted things to us in part, because we're using it to tell the story of the gospel, because we're using it to tell the story of the kingdom artists and craftsmen say, Oh, I have a, I have a part to play here. Um, and that goes even beyond that. Like there, some of the, the people who have even, um, who have like a very social heartbeat for things that are going on in the world that aren't right in your congregation, they will see you telling the story of your neighborhood and the story of it's of the people in our church and, and talking about the way that God is making all things new, telling the story in those ways. Um, will, I think, ignite the gifts and the heartbeats of your people in various ways you have that you cannot account for. Um, but one way to, to begin to stimulate those gifts in people is to be able to tell the story with everything that you've got. But really w- what I'm getting at here is um, this, the language, the stories, the symbols, the images, the, the people, all of this is, um, has been assembled and it has a story. And if we can unearth that story and, and kind of bring, shed light on it and, um, and, and ask the Holy spirit to help us discern like, what's, what's going on in here? How do I help people reimagine what's going on in here? Um, you will find, I think the church come to life and offer its gifts. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. Cause I would love to pull this around and talk about the role of the leader. Uh, talk a little more about the role of the leader in this. So, Again, this is not about how many resources you have. This isn't about being a genius at doing this. No, it's about drawing people right. into what is already there for us. What's what's what are the givens um, of the life of the church, of the liturgy, of scripture, of the, just the realities that we have and the gifts that we have by God's grace as Christians. Mm. 
But when I hear you tell about what you're doing at your church, um, you're a very engaging person, Sean. You're you're very entertaining. You know, you're funny. You've got this very live imagination. You're very energetic, and you are very immersed in this. And if you're someone who's already, you know, sort of immersed and energized by the liturgy and the life of the church, it's not too hard to immerse others and to enchant others if you yourself are still are enchanted. Mm. But what if I'm a leader and I just don't feel that way? I Maybe I'm tired, maybe I'm dry, yeah. or maybe, you know, I'm a really practical person. Storytelling, it's not really my biggest gift. Like, I'm an excellent administrator. But if someone says, you have to spark the imaginations of your congregation, I give an inner groan. You know, maybe I really love doing the budget, and that's mm. one of my strongest gifts. Um, what right. do I do? How can I put myself yeah, that's a great question. in that place of being enchanted or re-enchanted uh, in order to share this with other people? Yeah. Yeah, I, if if we can get to the core question here, I think that people might be able to see how how they can do this with their own personality, their own gifts, their own dispositions. Really, the core question here is, I think, one of discernment. Um, how is God present, and what is He up to here? And for someone who's maybe like less of a raging extrovert like myself, you may be a spiritual director, for instance, or a lay leader who's praying with someone or discipling. You might be like an intercessory prayer person. Um, you still have the job to ask, God, what are you doing here? Before you open your mouth and get busy doing a thing that you love to do or what you're typically used to doing, to just pause for a moment and say, God, what are you doing here? I, I recognize your presence. I, I want to know what you're up to so that I'm not mm. just running off mm -hmm. telling my own story or projecting my own ministry, but I'm, but I'm constantly discipling myself or disciplining myself to discern your presence and your work. So for instance, with evangelism, you brought that up earlier, maybe someone's an evangelist and that can look so many ways, but for an evangelist to, to sit down with someone who's maybe not a Christian and ask before they get talking with whatever they're used to saying, to discern uh, or, and even to say out loud or to themselves, God, I recognize that you were present already in this person's life and that me sitting down with them is not the first time you have been present to them, but you are already here. You love this person, you know this person, and you're already at work in this person. Then it takes kind of this Messiah complex off of the evangelist, for instance, and also allows that person to be present to that other person in a way that's um, way more compassionate and uh, patient and gentle. And it, it, it'll, it'll look totally different. It won't look forced or projected, but it'll, it'll be an act of discernment. So whatever that looks like, whether it's loud and upfront or like energetic or, you know, like, I don't know how, I don't even know how I, how would you describe me? But if, if it doesn't look like me, it's probably a good thing too, because we all have these varied gifts. Um, and in all of those varied gifts, we can all ask um, those discernment questions of God, where I know you're here. What are you doing? Can I join in? Mm -hmm. That's what this is all about. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Because somebody, honestly, somebody could see someone like you or me who are communicators, you know, sort of natural communicators and have a certain level of energy and say, they're full of it. Right. Or wow, you know, boy, are they a performer. And we have, we have right. gifts of performance and hopefully we're using them more, you know, more for 
God's glory <laughs> for our own need for attention or whatever. But oh, you know what? Us. They, I know, but they may really love someone who's like, they may really connect with someone who's shy or even, dare I say it, mm. a bit socially awkward. I don't mean unhealthy. Yes. I don't mean an unhealthy person, but I mean someone, you know, not everyone has the same stuff. Someone who lacks, you know, who's not going to be up and, and love being on a stage and have and work the party, you know, and talk to everyone at the cocktail party. It may be somebody who is like, oh, God, get me out of this party, who could be the most powerful witness to the people in their mm. lives that God that brings them in touch with. So I'm always really inspired by the ways that different personality types, different people with different mm. gifts and experiences can be used so powerfully because as you you mentioned gentleness and just the the gentle approach to the question of what should I do and and that being a submissive and gentle approach to the will of God and that is the shoehorn for the power of God mm -hmm. that is the position that says that grace Amen. is the is the sufficiency um, that's going to make anything happen that this creates a kind of environment um, where. And we're asking those questions in a humble way. Lord, what are you What are you wanting? What are you doing? This creates an environment where God's will is done and maybe done more easily um, and maybe a little more seamlessly um, than it might be otherwise and creates an environment where people are kind of drawn, where there's a fragrance of holiness. Um, maybe initially, but the thing is maybe initially um, part of the, the mission of this is that in some ways, this is not going to be attractive to the world. So we've talked about the ways in which this this draws people in. It's attractive. It it it's uh, it draws Christians more deeply in. It draws unbelievers in. It it creates this environment of prayer and God's will being done. You know, maybe even we have an occasional miracle happen. You know, who knows? Uh, and there's this sort of mystical element to it. But that's also going to create hostility with the world, as we hear about over and over in scripture and have seen played out again and again in church history. <laughs> but also, let's just be real, there's a little bit of hostility present in our church environments, okay, whether this is an Episcopal context or the ACNA or some other tricky church context. So we can we can talk a little bit about the hostility of the world. I think in some ways that speaks for itself. Out of what I'd really like to talk about, what might be really interesting is how is what we're doing witnessing to one another? Yeah, this is, wow, this is such an important question right now, isn't it? There's a lot um, riding on our ability, not to just talk about this, but to demonstrate this kind of Jesus-shaped submission to one another, um, this love of one another, but also a truth-telling to one another. However, we, just, we tend to, like, and we all do this, kind of justify ourselves. There's a word of judgment that is um, that will find us in the liturgy if we're listening. And I think that th those words of confrontation um, for those in the church are, if we hear, now this is the trick, if we hear them as directed at us and not as like, you know who really needs to hear this? This guy over, you know. But if we can really hear it as, we're not Jesus in this story. We're not the hero in these stories. But actually so often, um, we are the ones that need to hear this hard word. To be the first to say, Lord, have mercy on me. Who do I need to make this right with in my life? And then to respond in um, and getting on our knees and confessing sin. This should be a well-worn path for Christians. And I, 
And the liturgy, I think, opens up that space for us to walk that path every week so that in the world, we would be known not as the most judgment, judgmental and arrogant people, but actually as the most teachable, humble, loving people, because we do this all the time. We should be doing this all the time. And so, and I think that um, you're right about the hostility in the world toward the church, but also I think, to be honest, we, we like the world doesn't have a monopoly on hostility to the church. The church is hostile to itself. We don't help ourselves. Like we're kind of not great to each other. And we have everything we need in the example of Jesus in the way that we find in the liturgy to um, amend that, to, to find a way when there doesn't seem to be a way and to, to practice that kind of like, I will go first kind of humility um, and that repentance. And I know that's like people, I know people are having all kinds of thoughts, probably hearing this like, well, it's not so easy and that's so idealistic or, and that doesn't work. And all I would say to that is, all I would say to that is, we don't have to be concerned with what works or what's realistic. To be a Christian is to take up our cross and follow, not to be pragmatic, but to just obey. And I think that, again, we're into taking risks here when the liturgy, the liturgy opens up that invitation every week for us to, to follow Jesus in really costly ways. And I don't know where that will lead other than to him. And I think that should suffice for us. Um, but I, and I know that that's complicated. I don't mean any disrespect or, and I don't mean to take anything lightly here, but I do think that's the, the invitation that's before us in the liturgy. Walking into the church and participating in the liturgy is that risky leap of faith kind of moment where we think, um, in my life, we find ourselves caught between Pharaoh's armies coming to get us and a watery grave. And we are utterly dependent once again on God to make a way where there doesn't seem to be a way. I have been talking today with the Reverend Dr. Sean McCain. Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been so good. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. Again, you can do some new year giving to the Living Church by going to livingchurch.org forward slash donate or by clicking the link in the show notes today. We will be back in two weeks for a conversation with celebrated preacher and preaching teacher, the Reverend Dr. Mark Jefferson, about preaching in 200 pulpits all around the world and preaching in Cape Town the day after Archbishop Tutu died. What has he learned about preaching? about town squares, about American culture, revival, and the Anglican communion. Tune in and you'll find out. As always, I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it has been a fine day to be with you. Peace. Peace.